So this is kind of a combination of sermon and lecture. I'm not sure what to call that. A semcher? I'm not sure. A semcher? But uh, hopefully it'll be a blessing to you as I've been reflecting upon what I can share with you, primarily of those of you who are engaged in church ministry. So I'm assuming that all of you here are in some form of church leadership. And so I'm addressing you, not just pastors, but all of you who are engaged in some sort of church leadership. And I've been reflecting a lot about uh, this particular topic uh, when, we, when we talked about the conference theme and what I was going to talk about. And I thought, on the one hand, is this will be a breeze. I wrote a book on preaching, so I'll just talk about one of my chapters. Um, but I decided not to do that. I, I decided to really reflect, reflect and pray uh, and to share my own heart and what I've been going through over the last two years uh, in this role as TGC president, as we've been in the kind of the tip of the spear of a lot of the, the disillusionment, discouragement, uh, the division, the polarization, the fear, the fracturing that we see all around us, not only in our churches, but even in our world. And what's a good word I can bring to not only my own heart, but to all of you who are engaging in pastoral ministry. So I pray this is a blessing uh, to you. And so while we read um, Colossians 1, 28 to 29, this is really more of a kind of a broad statement that Paul himself describes his own kind of pastoral prophetic ministry. And it kind of, kind of encapsulates, I think, for me, what, what I want to do and I, what I want to share with you. So this will not be a sermon on Colossians 1, but this is kind of like a theme verse as I talk a little bit more about the, the office of prophet that Christ holds and the implications thereof. So, Colossians 1, 28 to 29. Listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, may your spirit come now and bless not only the reading, but also the preaching and teaching of your word. Speak now, Lord, your servants are listening, for we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Julius, remember, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. So said my mother, as a young Korean American trying to make his way through an American school for the first time, after we immigrated to the United States in fifth grade, and not only did they make fun of me for the way I looked, but also my name. Julius is not a common name if you've not heard so my mom reminded me of this adage, right? Sticks and, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Perhaps for many of us, this was a stock response we were taught to say as children in response to verbal bullying. But I don't know about you, as I got older, I realized quickly how much of this saying was not even true. We've all been on the receiving end of hurtful words and know that they most certainly have the power to hurt us. You know, others use words to ridicule, humiliate, slander, and scoff. It can, in fact, be more hurtful than sticks and stones. Hurtful words, especially lies, can cut very deep, and the ensuing pain can last. 
I know that for me, the last two years have been especially painful, perhaps the most painful I've ever experienced in ministry over the last 30 years. As people have called me names from Marxist to snowflake to false shepherd. And these are from my own church members. People that I ministered to, that I loved and cared for, sheep, bite back. And of course, one of the leading causes of this division and discouragement, fear and fracturing that we've all experienced is this, right? I believe a lack of clear and compelling prophetic witness by Christian leaders. Or to put more positively, it's to say this, in the midst of so much brokenness and division, we need more truth discerners and truth tellers in the pattern of Christ the prophet. And I believe that many of them can come out of the Asian American community. Julius, why talk about hurtful words at a conference on leadership? Because friends, words have much more power than we think in all areas of our life, not just on the playground. Truth-telling as leaders is about the words we choose, the words we choose to speak and the words we choose not to speak. Truth-telling is not simply a matter of not lying. It actually involves a lot more. And so what I'd like to do in this talk is to expand on this thesis here. Church leaders, okay, let me make it more personal. You, you are called to be truth discerners and truth tellers, both in word and in deed, by remembering the pattern and the posture of Christ the prophet. Let me say that again. You as church leaders are called to be truth discerners and truth tellers, both in your word and in your deeds, by remembering the pattern and posture of Christ the prophet. And so the rest of our talk will follow these two points, the pattern of truth-telling, and then secondly, the posture of truth-telling. Yes, only two points, but don't worry, they're both very long. (laughs) So first point, the pattern of truth-telling, the pattern of truth-telling. The first key point that helps us as Asian-American leaders discern, discern God's truth and to testify to it is to remember the pattern of truth-telling, especially through Christ's prophetic office. For those of you that are unfamiliar with this pattern of Christ as prophet, some theological and historical background may be helpful. As many of you know, one of the key truths crystallized in the 16th, 16th century Protestant Reformation was the importance of justification by faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, received by grace alone. Indeed, one can argue that in addition to the, to the recovery of sola scriptura as a key conviction of the Protestant Reformation, the Reformation was essentially, I believe, a recovery of the amazing truth that Christ alone is our Redeemer, saving us from sin, Satan, and death. And one of the ways the Reformers described the breadth and width of Christ's redemptive work on behalf of sinners was to describe him as fulfilling three offices, namely, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. The 17th century Westminster Shorter Catechism states it this way, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? The answer states, Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Our Reformed Fathers drawing on a paradigm traceable all the way back to the 4th century writer Eusebius of Caesarea found it helpful to think about Christ's work of salvation through the lens of this paradigm, prophet, priest, and king. For those of you 
that are Baptists, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, Confession puts it this way, quote, Christ and Christ alone is fitted to be mediator between God and man. He is prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. You see, theologians saw as they studied the scriptures that from the Old and New Testament, these three offices have shaped the way God relates to his people, be it Israel or the church. In fact, without an understanding of these three offices, I believe one cannot fully grasp what it means to be a truth teller in the pattern of Christ as prophet. But it requires us to do a brief excursus here, tracing these three offices from the creation of man to the cross. So from creation to cross, we want to trace this theme of three offices from Adam to Christ. He's paying special attention to the implications to his work as a prophet and to our work as truth discerners and truth tellers. Scriptures teach that man, so first, man, as originally created in the image of God, had true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so let's take a look at these three in turn. Knowledge, righteousness, knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. As we look at the three offices and man's original state. First, knowledge. Adam, prior to the fall, was created in knowledge, Colossians 3.10. That is, he was able to understand God's revelation for himself. In fact, when Adam began to name the animals, think about it, he actually revealed that he was able to grasp in his mind the animal's true nature and reveal it. As such, in doing that, that exercise, he functioned as a prophet who was able to discern God's truth, goodness, and beauty, and testify to it. So discern it and testify to it. And so a prophet discerns God's truth, goodness, and beauty, and testifies to it. So that's knowledge. What about holiness? Secondly, Scripture teaches that God originally created Adam in holiness, Ephesians 4, 24. Prior to sin entering his heart, man was truly devoted to God, delighting only in God. Though this idea of holiness becomes much more pronounced in the Old Testament through the system of worship that God would reveal to Moses, here at the garden, Adam serves God with a pure heart, wholly consecrated, finding perfect peace and contentment in his creator alone. So he functioned as a priest, loving and serving God and his will. So a priest loves, in his heart, loves and serves God and his will. Third, we've talked about knowledge, we've talked about holiness. What about righteousness? Third, Adam was created in the image of God, also in righteousness. What does that mean? Ephesians 4.24. As a righteous man, prior to the fall, he was able to obey God perfectly, doing the perfect will of God without sinning. God gave him the authority and responsibility to rule over everything he had created. Thus, as God's vice regent, Adam received and exercised dominion over all the earth, in this way, he functions as a king, providing peace and order to God's world. So a king provides peace and order to God's world. So thus man, as originally created in the image of God, was to function as a true prophet, a true priest, and true king over all the earth, under the reign and rule of God. So in his mind, in his heart, and in his will, that is, cognition, emotion, and volition, Man was endowed with the knowledge, holiness, and righteousness to know God 
and to care perfectly for God's world. It was a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, as you know the story, our first parents, as the Bible teaches us, though created with this original knowledge, holiness, and righteousness, fell from this state because of their rebellion. They deliberately sinned, and as a result, every aspect of their being, their mind, heart, and will, became corrupt. This corruption, the Bible teaches us, affected all mankind since Adam represented all humanity. But thanks be to God. God did not leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery. So now let's see the connection of these three offices from man's original state to his fallen state and now to Christ's redemptive work because there's a connection. In his great mercy, God chose from the mass of sinful humanity some to be saved through the work of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. And Christ's work as Redeemer could only be accomplished because Jesus, as the sinless God-man, became what? The perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king, sacrificing himself for his elect who lost their original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, becoming ignorant, guilty, and sinful. And so Christ perfectly and perpetually loved and obeyed God in his mind, heart, and will. And that's the connection. Glory be to God. So Christ has become the savior of the elect through, through these three offices. And so sinful man must know through Christ via his word and spirit that only he can save him. Sinful man must feel his need for the cleansing work of Christ's blood. And sinful men must live a life worthy of Christ through the power of Christ. This is a story of the entire Bible. The New Testament book of Hebrews reveals how Christ united this threefold designation found within Old Testament people, history, and events through his perfect life and ministry. He became a greater prophet than Moses, a greater priest than Aaron, a greater king than David. And while there is not one clear-cut passage that describes these three offices as relating to Jesus Christ, there nonetheless exist numerous texts that reveal Christ's work through these functions. And so, as the true and final prophet, Jesus embodied and spoke the truth as no one had ever done before. He himself, in fact, personified truth. He was the truth, and he always spoke the truth. He was a true prophet the final prophet, but he was also the true and final priest, right? He offered himself as the once for all sacrifice on the cross, though he was holy and blameless. And as the true and final king, he possessed all authority and all rule with order over men and creation. Dead men were raised to life and even the winds and the waves obeyed him. And now friends, even from heaven, Christ continues his ministry not only through his word and his spirit, but especially through us, praise be to God, through his bride, the church, as he gives gifts to the church and empowering them with these offices. And so this context thus provides a new gospel-centered paradigm that is useful for those of us seeking to follow in the same pattern of Christ-centered truth-telling ministry. As a prophet greater than Moses, Christ discerned God's truth, goodness, and beauty and testified to it. As a true and final prophet, Jesus embodied and spoke the truth as no one had ever done before. For he himself was the truth and he always spoke the truth. And now, 
by virtue of our union with him, we also receive the mantle of being, yes, prophets, priests, and kings. Regardless of whether we hold the special office of minister, elder, or deacon, or have the gifts of the Spirit found in the general office of all believers, we now share in the great privilege and responsibility to pursue the knowledge, holiness, and righteousness that all of these offices entail. And so fellow prophets, let's learn the pattern set by Jesus as we are called to be truth discerners and truth tellers. This is the prophetic pattern that helps shape our truth discerning and truth telling ministry. We, in following the prophetic pattern set by Jesus, must discern the truth by knowing the word, studying the word, devoting ourselves to the word, and relying on his spirit, and then testifying to it with boldness, with clarity, with compassion. And I can't imagine a more important time to learn this important truth. And in my almost 30 years of ministry, I can't imagine a more challenging time to be a church leader than the past two years, as I said before. In addition to some of the unique difficulties that our own church faced, such as spiritual and sexual abuse cases, as if that wasn't enough, our church struggled with how to best respond to a global pandemic and to political polarization. Perhaps my church was the only one. And though we never put it into these categories, we as church leaders were being called upon to be prophetic witnesses in the pattern of Christ. That is to be wise and winsome, truth discerners and truth tellers. But friends, it hasn't been easy. In fact, I've I've learned some statistics have revealed that close to 30 to 35% of pastors have left the ministry in just the last two years. And that's why I'm so encouraged to be here this week. Friends, it's an opportunity for us to remember why we serve, or better stated, who we serve. It's an opportunity for us to recall the promises of a Savior who will never leave us nor forsake us. It's an opportunity for us to recast our vision and regain our strength together. And for me, being wise and winsome truth discerners and truth tellers actually doesn't begin with the preaching book or five steps to become a better preacher. If you need that, just buy my book. (laughs) I think it's okay. And I can easily come up here and tell you all the steps to be a good proclaimer of the gospel. That's important. But as I've been reflecting, and what what the Lord has put on my own heart, is that being a wise and winsome truth discerner and truth teller starts with posture, not with propositions. That is, we need a fresh reminder of the posture of a prophet, not the propositions of a pundit. Now, don't get me wrong. What we say is extremely important. After all, you're listening to me right now. Speak words. Furthermore, we are called heralds of the king. We have been appointed to be mouthpieces of our God, and we need to do that accurately and faithfully with courage and compassion, and that's why I've dedicated 20 years to teach future heralds and wrote a book about it. So let me state again how vital it is to become lifelong learners of what it means to be a faithful steward of God's word so as to preach and teach it well, especially to a new generation that is not only unchurched but becoming dechurched. We need to herald how the gospel of Jesus, right, 
that the God, we need to herald how the gospel of Jesus is both biblical and beautiful, real and relevant. But with the challenges we find in our churches and in the complexities we see in our culture, I'm more convinced than ever that as church leaders, thinking about how to be more prophetic witnesses in the pattern of Christ, I actually want us to be reminded of the theology of the cross and not the theology of glory. And so I want to share with you to the second point, what is the posture then of truth-telling? Before you speak, before you prepare that talk, what should your posture be? As I stated before, being wise and winsome, truth discerners and truth tellers starts with posture, not with propositions. And simply put, I believe our calling is to be something like bamboo. Let me explain. Over 30 years ago, on the eve of my wedding, my mom gave me and my wife two mugs. I thought it a bit strange that of all the things my mom could give to us, we got mugs. But I was nonetheless thankful As I looked more carefully, as we were sitting together around that kitchen table, I noticed that on each of the mugs were two Chinese characters. And my mother began to explain. She gave me my mug. I didn't know the character on it. She said, Julius, on this mug is the word, the character for the word heart. This is because as I think about you, one of the greatest traits you have is your generous heart. That is God's gift to you. And while marriage is wonderful, it can also be very hard. Every day as you drink from this mug, I want you to be reminded of the great heart of love your heavenly father has for you and to share that with your new wife. Always have a big heart. (laughs) Thank you, Bob. (laughs) You're right, I do have a big heart. (laughs) She then turned to my wife. Said, Jihi, your mug is the word for bamboo. When I think of you and pray for you, the word bamboo comes to mind. This is because while bamboo is one of the strongest types of trees that God has made, it is also incredibly flexible. For you, living with Julius will not always be easy. (laughs) You will need to bend a lot with love, with patience, with forgiveness, with long-suffering. But don't ever break. Don't compromise the truth of what is right. But always be compassionate and patient. As I think about our calling to be prophetic witnesses today, I want to exhort and encourage you with, for you to begin with your posture. Be willing to bend, just don't break. One of the most radical things we can do as church leaders is to make the invisible kingdom visible by revealing a posture of love, not hate, forgiveness, not revenge. And Jesus gives us a clue in his own prophetic words of what that looks like in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, in which he says this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, even the evil ones on social media. Wait, that's not in my... (laughs) Sorry, that was a Julius revised version, I think that was. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here Jesus reminds us again of the radical nature of prophetic posture. 
that is even before truthful words come out of our mouths or gracious deeds are shown through our lives, our prophetic posture must be aligned with the heart of our Savior. And so what I want to do now is just walk through this passage and see what it has to teach us about a prophetic posture. If you'll notice, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there because it's fascinating to see. In Matthew 5, we find actually the fifth of six times where Jesus begins his teaching with a particular pattern. It actually begins in verse 21. He starts by saying this in 5.21, you have heard that it was said, then he quotes an Old Testament law, then he says, but I tell you. And he does this six times. And the passage I just read is the fifth time he does this. Now by saying this, is he contradicting the Old Testament? With the use of this conjunction, remember right? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? (laughs) This dates me, I know. But more specifically, is he contradicting what Moses taught the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings? He seemingly argues that the Old Testament Mosaic law is invalid and seems to be introducing a new and better way. He actually quotes from Deuteronomy 19, 21, and he states, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But as we have seen thus far, he's not arguing against the validity of the Old Testament law. And one of the simple reasons why we know this is because of what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, not you have heard that it was written. Very important distinction. Rather, what is evident here is that Jesus is confronting the teachers of the law during his day in the first century that were distorting the intended meaning of the law based on their particular interpretations. In verses 38 to 42, these teachers, probably the Pharisees and the scribes, were instructing their followers, people of God they were, that exacting revenge and executing retaliation in certain cases was not only allowed, but actually the proper interpretation of the Old Testament law. After all, isn't that what Moses meant? Deuteronomy, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, tweet for tweet, right? (laughs) Known as the law of Italian or the law of equity. This teaching in Deuteronomy articulated the principle that the punishment must fit the crime. Unfortunately, this law that was actually meant to limit and restrain, restrain retaliation was being misconstrued, misinterpreted, and mistaught to permit vengeance and retribution to the nth degree. And as such, in the hands of these Pharisees, this law of fair punishment was nurtured into a law of personal vengeance. Clearly, this was to misunderstand the purpose of the law. Since this law was meant to restrain personal vindictiveness and retaliation, the real fulfillment would be found in a person who did not seek such revenge. Whether that revenge came in the form of external physical retribution or perhaps more importantly to us, internal spiritual hatred. And this is the connection to us, right? You see, Jesus is not only confronting the Pharisees who misinterpret the law, he's confronting all of us. You see, Jesus confronts the heart of the matter that is the matter of the heart. Like a skilled surgeon, he carefully cuts away and removes all the external layers in order to get to the core of the disease, the disease of sin that causes us to hate, despise, and desire vengeance on those who mistreat us in any way, whether it's the driver who cuts us off on the road or the one who attacks us on social media 
or it hurts our loved ones when they're just walking down the street. How often our first response is one of hatred and revenge. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's real. Isn't this how we often respond when we're provoked? By enemies all around us, a spouse, a child, a church member, a fellow pastor, a stranger. You know this feeling. And what the Pharisees and sometimes we as closet Pharisees don't realize is that our enemies are often those who are closest to us. And this is Jesus' confrontation of our own hearts that are so prone to the sin of hatred and retaliation because of why? Because of idols. Idols of anger, fear, entitlement, control, comfort, name it. It's getting too close to home, huh? Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here as he tries to remind us of, do you really want to have, be a prophetic witness? Then let me tell you what that's all about. Jesus not only confronts the matter of our hearts that are prone to hate, he actually moves on in the text, if you notice, to express the expectations he has for those who want to follow the true meaning of the law. So he moves from confrontation of this sin to the expectation he has for those who want to have this posture of a prophetic witness. In verses 38 to 42, he calls us not to retaliate when provoked, but to actually give up our all. Let's look at this and see what it has to teach us today. You'll notice in verses 38 to 42, he gives four implicit commands through the use of illustration to reveal the radical nature of being a prophetic witness. Keep in mind, these are illustrations meant to teach a deeper principle or paradigm that is a prophetic posture, I believe. So first, he says, turn the other cheek. You see, Jesus pictures a man being slapped on the right cheek. So just do me a favor and put your hand on your right cheek, your right cheek. It's this one. So if someone were standing opposite of you and slapping you, how would that person do so? You can put your hands down. Think about it. Would it be left-handed? It's a backhanded slap is being pictured here. Two things are significant about this backhanded slap. Jesus pictures somebody being slapped with the back of the hand. Did you know, first of all, that such a blow was more an insult in their worldview than a violent crime like murder or homicide? In their mind, a backhanded slap was considered more grossly offensive. Secondly, did you know that, that, that the fine, if you backhanded slap someone and you had to go to court and you got fined, you would be fined an entire year's wage? This is no ordinary felony. In fact, it was an insult for which the only recourse was to take that person to court, what somebody, what somebody might do today for libel or defamation of character. So what does Jesus mean here when he says, when you've been so grossly humiliated and scandalously offended, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and you can take that person to court, and get a year's wage off of him. What does Jesus say? Take him to court and give to the church. <laughs> of course he does. He says, turn the other cheek. That's crazy. Crazy. Crazy talk, Jesus. Surely he's not saying that we should stand, deliberately stand in the way of further suffering. Of course not. What is Jesus doing? He's giving us the posture of a prophet. 
Jesus is challenging them and us in this figurative way that to stand on our own rights and to seek to have our dignity reaffirmed even in the face of a violent offense is not the right response. Now again, we can call evil evil and we can seek justice. That's not what Jesus is saying here. There are other passages of scripture where Jesus talks about justice in the right way, godly justice. But here he's talking about a posture that needs to animate us from deep within whatever we do. And I'm afraid that what I'm seeing in our world today is less and less of this posture. Secondly, he says, give away your cloak. Here Jesus pictures a man in court being sued for his tunic. In the first century legal context, a tunic or the inner shirt would serve as a guarantee of payment. It's kind of like an IOU. To this, Jesus says, now take off your outer cloak and give that up as well. What is Jesus saying here through this illustration? The point of the saying makes sense when we remember that the outer coat of the Jew was virtually sacred. Remember the amazing technicolor dream coat that Joseph's brothers were jealous of? Well, if that outer cloak, in fact, if that outer cloak, even for Jewish law said, that if the outer cloak were taken as a financial pledge, it had to be returned before nightfall because for some it served as both body clothing and bed clothing. Again, Jesus' point is when his followers meet with opposition and persecution, they should not stand on their legal rights. Instead of retaliating back with sin, those who desire to follow Jesus give up their all even the things that they hold most dear. In fact, they're willing to give up their most prized possession. In this case, their outer cloak. After all, love covers a multitude of sins. Third, go the extra mile. This phrase, again, is understandable if we understand the context and background of the time of writing. As you know, The Jewish people at this time were not a free people. The Roman army had occupied Palestine. And as such, they introduced certain laws. And one law was they had the right, any Roman soldier had the right to force any Jew to assist them and carry their armor for a certain distance, not one step more. The Jews hated this practice more than anything else because it publicly illustrated the humiliation of being a subjugated people of being slaves with the heel of the Roman on their neck. And you could easily imagine how the Romans must have abused this right that they had to oppress the Jew time and time again. And Jesus says, to the shock of those that were listening, when you are, so to speak, drafted for service and you have to walk the thousand paces required by Roman regulations, Jesus says, Just keep going. Carry the load one more mile. No soldier had the right to make someone do that, but Jesus says do it voluntarily. Lastly, he says, give to those who borrow or beg. This is interesting because notice, first of all, Jesus pictures us now in a different position. Now we're in the position of power and privilege. Whereas the first three illustrations have us in a position of inferiority, a position of defense, We're not being put into a situation where now the superior in a position of offense. Now, giving to those who ask to borrow or giving to those who beg was not a legal duty for these early disciples. They were under no obligation to give. And yet Jesus is showing them, 
Listen, the same law that restrains evil acts, the same law, is also meant to teach us to freely express a lifestyle of grace. That is, in the language of my Presbyterian confession, the same law that teaches us against, against the sins of commission indicts us against the sins of omission. And so the true expression of this law of equity is found in this intentional yielding up of not only our rights, but indeed of our very all. Loving with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God and neighbor, especially the bad neighbor. Only when we show this kind of love and sacrifice for our enemies will they maybe see the God-given meaning of this law. Perhaps they will understand that our citizenship is in heaven and not in Palestine, Rome, Korea, or even in America. Perhaps they will see Jesus through this prophetic posture coupled with our prophetic words. So Jesus says, turn the other cheek, give up your cloak, go the extra mile, give to those who borrow or beg. These are Jesus' expectations for all of us. This is what he means when he says, do not resist an evil person. This is not easy, is it? And it wasn't easy for these early disciples. They must have been simultaneously paralyzed by Jesus' demands and yet electrified by what Jesus was teaching. And yet this is the posture of someone who wants to follow Jesus' pattern of being a truth discerner and a truth teller. Shocking though it was to these first hearers, Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 5 would eventually produce men and women who would turn the world upside down for his kingdom. It included 11 ordinary guys who at first couldn't have understood what Jesus was talking about, but ultimately discovered the key. You see, the confrontation of this sin and the expectation of this law had to be transformed by a sinless substitute who would pay the penalty for our sins of not loving of not having this posture, but also provide the power to truly love and have the posture like Jesus. So now having seen here in Matthew 5, Jesus' confrontation of our hearts and his expectation of this prophetic posture, we turn now to think about how Jesus transforms this law for us. To be a truth discerner and a truth teller in the prophetic pattern of Christ, you need Truth personified. Truth personified becomes our penalty payer and our power provider. Why is this important, friends? The only way we can have the correct posture to then have the right words to say and the right life to live is if Jesus transforms us from the inside out. You see, the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, knew this. That this law against hatred and retaliation against our enemies found definitive and decisive transformation in the person and work of this final prophet. And so I want to t- invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27 and, and see this correspondence here between Jesus' teaching about this prophetic posture and our ability to actually try to follow it. Don't forget, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Matthew 27, 27. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Matthew 27, 27. Now listen as we see this correspondence. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium 
and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Sticks and stones. Turn the other cheek. Verse 31. After they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him. Give away your cloak. And led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Go the extra mile. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Give to those who borrow or beg. Coincidence or planned all along? Friends, the only way, the only way you can have a Christ-like posture to love your enemies is if you've been transformed by grace from the inside out. Christ did it all. He turned the other cheek, gave up his cloak. He went the extra mile. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He did good to those who hated him. He blessed those who cursed him. And he, like his father, was gracious to all, even to internet trolls. How? By giving up his life for sinners like you and me so we could be united to him by faith. Friends, he's our penalty payer, but he's also our power provider. Remember what Luke tells us in chapter 24? He records Jesus saying this. Listen, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are, can I add this, you are prophetic witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So even before they become these prophetic witnesses, what do they say? Jesus says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, friends, Jesus yielded up his spirit, and he now gives it to you. Jesus is not only our penalty payer, but our power provider. The confrontation of our sinful hearts, the expectation to love our enemies can only be accomplished through the penalty-paying, power-providing transformation of grace that Christ offers and we receive through repentance and faith. Friends, this is the grace. This is the grace that will transform your heart your mind, your words, your deeds, so that you can be a prophetic witness because Christ was one first. He took on this posture of loving his enemy to the point of going to the cross. And guess what? You were that enemy. And when you recognize this grace, it will give you the right prophetic posture before the right prophetic words, before the right prophetic deeds. See, friends, this is the transformative power of grace, and this is what we need to hear more and more. This is what I needed to hear 
as I prepared for this talk. Because unlike Owen, who's passionate, I get angry. <laughs> See, Owen just gets passionate. I actually get really angry. In my pride, I get angry. And in my despair, I get depressed. And if you're a church leader, you know the twin, you know those twin feelings. But when you understand the power of God in Christ and the grace that he offers you, it transforms you. And so you don't have to respond to that tweet. You don't have to respond when someone calls you a false shepherd. You don't have to respond in the wrong ways. You can still maintain that prophetic posture of grace and love, knowing that they're in process just like you, and speak a kind word for kindness leads to repentance. Here is the power of grace, friends, that will transform ordinary people like you and me into extraordinary followers and leaders of Christ. Here is the power of grace that will transform us into the pattern and into the posture of Christ-like prophetic witness in the midst of so much brokenness and division, not only in our hearts but in our lives. May many truth discerners and truth tellers in the pattern of Christ the prophet be propelled from this conference. Lord, may it be so. Let's pray. Father, this is our desire that you would propel from this conference those who so understand your grace that they would be prophetic witnesses with the right posture even before the right words and the right deeds. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to change our hearts, make it soft. May we be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry as we emulate our Savior Jesus, the great and true prophet. Father, this is our desire. May your spirit make it so. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.